0: Malachi chapter 3 this evening. Malachi chapter 3. In 2008, a pastor from a Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia, petitioned the people of his church to take 10% of their earnings for the next six months and give it to the church, an advance amount. And he used this text that we're going to look at today particularly verse 10 where it says, bring the whole tithes into the storehouse and see what God does back for you. Will He not fill up the barns and make them to overflow? He told, that this, he told His people that these, this promise was for them. And if they would just test God in this, that, that they would see that God would respond to them by re- replenishing what they had given. So, so the idea was, figure out how much you earn for the next six months from January 31st to July 31st. Give 10% of that to the church in one lump sum and see if God gives it back to you. And he believed it so much, or at least he said he did, to the point where he said, you cannot outgive God. And I am so confident in that fact, he said, that I am going to give you a money-back guarantee. That if God does not replenish the money that you have given to the church within that six months, then we will give your money back. All you have to do is submit a request to have that money back. So if you gave $100,000, He would give all of that back if God didn't. So, so He basically left it kind of vague for the people how God was going to give them that money back. could be any way, uh, any way possible. But the point was is that, that He based His plea to this church on this passage. Now, there are lots of different interpretations of what this passage means. And what I want to do tonight is I want to look at it, and find out what it means from a historical perspective. That is, what did it mean for the people of Israel? And then ask the question, what does it mean for us? Okay, that's where application comes in. Because we can't just take promises and truth and apply them to ourselves if they weren't promises for us. And since we're not Israel, these, in fact, are not our promises. So we've got to be careful with how we use them. I want to answer three questions this evening. Number one, what is God teaching the people of Israel in this passage? Number two, did Israel have a responsibility to tithe? Did Israel have, in other words, an obligation to tithe? And then the final question that I want to answer tonight is, do we have a responsibility to tithe? Do we? Chapter 3, verse... 6. Continue our study here in Malachi. And I'll read down through verse 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? and tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I think the main point of this passage is that God desires to bless His people despite their faithlessness. God desires to bless His people despite their faithlessness. And what we're going to see here at the beginning is that God demands repentance from them for their selfish giving. We see this in the first couple of verses. God is showing that, hey, I am faithful, and yet you are being faithless to Me. You are being unfaithful. And you're doing it with your selfish giving. Notice God's faithfulness to His people in verses 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Because God is unchanging, He is also faithful to His promises. His changelessness guarantees His faithfulness. He says, I do not change. Therefore, what? You, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Therefore, I remain faithful to you because I don't change. In what way is God unchanging? In what way is God unchanging? It does not mean that God is unchanging with His dealings with people. It can't mean that, right? He has different expectations for us than He had for Moses, than He had for Adam, than He had for Abel. He had different expectations for these people as He does for us. So, so God does change in the way that He deals with people. So what does He mean when He says, says, I do not change? I would suggest to you that it means that He's unchanging in His character, in His purposes, in His promises. God doesn't change in those ways. He is, In other words, He's no less loving than He was when He first created the world. And He will be no less loving when He destroys the world at the end of time. He's no less holy than when he when he demanded a sacrifice in the Old Testament. He hasn't changed in his character. Nothing within him has changed. So God's character does not change. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That that's the idea that that he never changes. He is the same. And Jesus, as we know, is the perfect representation of God the Father. So so we can understand from that that God the Father does not change. It means that He is incapable of growth or decay. God can't get any better or any worse, right? James one seventeen calls Him the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting of shadows. God does not change. Now, this is kind of... Um, interesting because we have passages where it seems like God changes. Remember at Mount Sinai when Moses was up on the mountain and the people down below were were building an altar or building an idol, I should say, a calf idol, and they were worshiping it, calling it a God and saying that this is the God that led us out of Egypt. Moses comes down from the mountain, sees what's going on, And God sees what's going on and He says, Moses, I'm going to destroy those people. We saw this this morning in Sunday school. And at the end, Moses says, Please, God, you can't do this on the basis of Your glory and Your grace for Your people. You can't do this on the basis of, of Your name, getting Your name out to the rest of the world. They're going to think You're a ruthless God if You just wipe them all out again and start over. And it says, uh, towards the end there that God relented that he he repented of what he had done that he changed his mind in other words so what does that mean that God changes we said he can't change in his character he can't change in his purposes he has the same purpose from the beginning to the end he can't change in his promises so what is God changing well I would I would say that he is changing in the way that he deals with people he changes in the way that he deals with people It's a, it's the same thing I think with regard to the sun. Okay, the sun doesn't change. It's just one flaming ball of fire. And yet, the same sun that melts the wax is also the same sun that hardens the clay. You see? The sun changes the, the way it, it uh, reacts to different things, but but it doesn't change in, the, in its nature, in its essence. So hopefully that will uh, give you a little bit of picture of what it means that God does not change. He's not only unchanging in His character, but in His purposes. His purposes were set in eternity past and have not changed. And if God could change for the better, then He would not be the best possible God right now. And if if He could change for the worse, then there is a possibility of an infinite evil God. But obviously those neither one of those are the case. The scriptures are clear that God does not change. And this is probably the best uh, the best proof text for that doctrine that God does not change, that he is what theologians call immutable, unchangeable, comes from Malachi chapter three, verse six, plenty other verses that support this. But because he is changeless, he is faithful. He is faithful to His promise. He keeps His people from being destroyed. Notice verse 6 at the end. Therefore, as a result of my changelessness, you, O sons of Jacob, are not destroyed. Now, if God was a changing God, if God changed His purposes from time to time based on what was happening all around, what would have happened to Israel by now? Would they not have been destroyed? They had broken the covenant. And yet, God does not destroy them because He is, as we find out in Exodus and in Jonah and in several other passages, He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is a patient God. He is slow to anger. But He does demand repentance. Even though He is changeless, He still expects something on the part of His people. Notice verse 7, "...from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from My statutes and have not kept them." You have not kept them. From the days of your father, Malachi was written around 400 B.C., BC, about 400 years before the coming of our Lord. And when was the last time that Israel as a nation was faithful to God? Before Malachi. The last time was probably David, right? And David was, was in existence around 1500 B.C. So we're talking over 1100 years between the time that Israel had been faithful to God and following what He wanted, and now, remember, they had gone through all of this waywardness. and God was continually calling them back to Himself. had to send them into exile to make His point. And what He's saying to them is, listen, you need to return to Me. You need to repent of your sins and come back to Me. And if they will repent, if Israel repents, then God will renew His promises to them. His promise of blessing. Now, God clarifies the nature of His people's selfish giving in the last part of verse 7. He says, Return to Me and I will return to you, says the Lord of Hosts. This is what He's calling for. He's calling for repentance. Individual repentance on the part of the people. But then they ask a question. Okay, if you want us to repent, notice the end of the verse, but you say, how shall we return? They're thinking, return from what? Where have we gone? We haven't left you, God. You've left us. We came back from the exile. By the way, why were we there in the first place? They're thinking, you were the one who led us there, God. They come back from the exile to the, the place where God had promised. They rebuilt the temple. Where's all this blessing and prosperity that you promised? How are you saying that we have not returned? And that's why they asked the question. If anything, God, you have abandoned us. Not you, not, not us, you. But God is going to answer their question. He's going to show them where they have abandoned Him. Notice verse 8. He clarifies his assertion regarding their need to repent. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? God's saying, You need to return to me by giving, giving me back. We can start with giving me back what you've stolen. They have robbed God. They did it by taking, taking something that rightfully belonged to God. We'll see later that it's referring to their giving, their, their tithes and their offerings. They did not recognize that, that really they were taking from God's storehouse in a sense because all of the earth belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24.1 All the wealth belongs to God in its entirety. Exodus 19.5 All Israel is mine, Leviticus 20, 26. All the land is mine, Leviticus 25, 23. And as Israel should recognize, we also should recognize that God owns everything. He owns it all. We simply possess it temporarily. We have an opportunity to be stewards of what God has given to us. And so, the the reason sometimes that we don't recognize... That, that we're in such violation of what God wants from us is because we don't see it as, as as that God owns it all. We think that we own it. See, there's a there's a disputed ownership here. God's saying, I own it. You've taken it from me. You've not given it back to me like you should have. And we say, no, we own it. We're the ones who earned it. I'm the one who went out and got a job. I'm the one who put it in the bank and allowed it to gain interest. It's mine. God's saying, No. It's not yours. It's all mine. So to because God owns it all, to withhold anything from God is robbery. And that's why he says at the beginning of verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And then the people question him again. In the middle of the verse it says, But you say, how have we robbed you? Again, this is God speaking here. He's already anticipating what they're going to ask. Because they certainly don't see themselves in the wrong. First, they ask, well, well, how have we turned from you? Where, how shall we return? We've never gone away. And God says, because you're robbing me. And they say, well, how are, you, how are we robbing you? We haven't really taken anything. I don't, I don't see what you're, you're getting at. God responds and makes it even more clear. And He does this at the very end of verse 8 by saying, in tithes and offerings. How have, you, how have we robbed you? God says, you've robbed me by, by taking from me tithes and off- offerings. He's saying, I own it all. It may not seem like you're stealing, but, but you're robbing me when, when, when you're withholding something that is rightfully mine. Now, suppose you decided this year that you were simply not going to record your income to the, to the government. You simply were not going to do that. Now, that's not the same thing as holding up a gun, at gunpoint the U.S. Treasury and asking them to give you a whole five-foot roll of bills, right? It's not the same thing. But the government treats it as the same thing, doesn't, don't they? Because evading taxes is the same as going in and robbing somebody of the money that was rightly due to them. The government in their day did the same sort of thing. They demanded a price to be paid. And if we withhold something from the government that is rightfully there, that is the same as robbing them. This is what God's saying to the people of Israel. He's saying both are stealing. Both are punishable. So the answer God gives is simple. Simple. You're robbing me me not by sneaking into my heavenly storehouse and pulling out money out of my treasure box. You're robbing me by withholding money that is rightfully mine. You're withholding resources. So I said I wanted to answer the question, what is God saying to his people? I think the primary point that that he's saying is, we have a responsibility to repent of our selfish giving this is the the point he's making for the people of Israel and then i said d- did israel the next question we want to answer is did does israel have a responsibility to give or did israel at this time have a responsibility to tithe in order to answer that question we need to understand what the word tithe means the word tithe is used 30 time 32 times in the old testament almost all of which refer to the word means a tenth part of one's resources. A tenth part. It simply means a tenth. You've heard this before. And um, the purpose of the tithe really came out of the ancient Near East a custom that, that was was uh, started by some kings in ancient Israel. They would levy a 10% tax on the people because of all the services that the king would perform. And you remember this was a theocratic state it was a, a king-ruled uh, king state. Supposedly a king that was supposed to be under the authority of God. And then this was adopted into the Israelite culture in that they would now give 10% of what they had to the temple treasury. It was a recognition that, that God was protecting them, just like the people who were giving 10% to the, to the kings and the governors They were doing it as a recognition of their authority over them and as as a recognition of the service that they had performed on their behalf and all the benefits that came with being a citizen of that state. Same thing was true within the Israelite community. They recognized that God was in authority over them, and so they would give to God. They would give this tithe. In essence, it was the Lord's tax on the theocratic king of Israel or as the theocratic king. He's saying, I am the king of you, Israel, and so I, 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 I demand that you give to me this money. Now, let's turn back to Leviticus 27 because I, I said the question we want to answer, Leviticus 27, the question we want to answer is, was this demanded? Did the Old Testament Israel have an obligation to tithe? Leviticus twenty-seven, verse thirty. Notice the notice the claim that God has on their money. He says in verse thirty, "Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord." And then verse thirty-two: "For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod." The tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. Okay, so he, he first appeals to, to their understanding that you meet, need to understand that it all belongs to me. Similar to the vineyard owner this morning when we were looking at Mark chapter 12. The owner's saying, Listen, it all belongs to me. I'm allowing you to, to take part in some of these resources, but you have a responsibility to give back to me whatever I ask. This is exactly what's happening with Israel. They had a 10% tax. Or not taxed a ten percent tithe that was required of them, and actually, what we have are three tithes in the Old Testament. These were given annually. This one here was given to the priests. It was given uh, once per year, where they would take uh, an inventory of all that they had, all that they had that uh, their their grain. Their crops, their animals, and they would give a tenth. That's why verse thirty-two says, "The tenth one of your flock is holy unto the Lord; it belongs to God." So you give it back to the priest, and this is one of the ways that the that the priest is maintained. What he maintains his living, and also how the whole community and the the temple is is uh, continually put in place. At so this time it would have been the tabernacle, but when we get to Malachi, it's the temple. So you have this first tithe that was given. There's also a a tithe that was given yearly, another 10%, given to the temple in Jerusalem. This was designed to provide for the sacred meal that was taken up. So you have 10% to the priest, 10% to the temple, and then there was a third tax that was given to a person's hometown, where you would help provide for the Levitical Priests that were in your area to help support the the people. This was given not every year, but every three years. So in effect, you would have the first year you'd have to pay 20% tax of all that you had. Second year you pay 20% te- not tax, excuse me, tithe of all that you have. And then the third year you would pay 30% of all that you have. All this would be given to the Lord in different ways, but but it would be 20, 20, 30, which averaged out to about 23%. Now some people would argue that that uh, two of these taxes are combined, so it actually would be that last one actually is combined with the second one that I mentioned, so it's actually only 20%. But what we can say is that at the very least what God demanded of them was 10%, and at the most God demanded of them 23%. Malachi seems to be talking, however, about the whole tithe. Notice, turn back in your Bibles to verse uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Okay, because he, he's distinguishing in verse in verse eight, "You are robbing me with tithes and offerings." And then verse 10, he says, "Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse." Now we'll, uh, we'll get there in just a second, but before we do that, let me just explain to you what offerings are. Okay, offerings is basically uh, are portions that are set aside for the purpose of God and his work. It was something that was given to God. It's a term that can be used to distinguish between different types of contributions. So what we, we need to understand is that offerings is the broadest terms of how we give everything that we give to God. Or for Israel, that's how they would give everything that they give to God. Tithe was a subset of offerings. Okay, So tithe was one of the ways that you gave your offerings. So tithes would refer to the ten percent, and offerings would refer to other gifts included in in the giving that you give to God. Numbers eighteen twenty four explains this. Uh, I think suggests that this tithe is a subcategory of offering. If you want to look there uh, when you have some time. Before we uh, uh, move to verse ten, though, I do I need, do need to say something about verse nine. That is. Let me read that. Verse 9, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing Me, the whole nation of you. This was not just a little sporadic thing. A few people here, a few people there. This was the whole nation. God saying, You, all of you, you are robbing Me. You are, you are withholding from Me what, what is due to Me. So as a result, there will be covenant punishments, covenant curses that come upon you. But in verses 10-12, through 12, what we find is that God is a forgiving God, isn't He? He's a forgiving God because He blesses those who repent of their failure to give. Notice the result of repentance in verse 10. If they would simply to return to God, notice what God will do to them, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Okay, That, that would suggest that they have repented because this is what they're not doing. They're not bringing the whole tithe in. Bring it in so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God was demanding here that they return, that they repent of their sin, their selfish giving. And if they did, and God says, then you can test me in this. Now, we need to think about this term test. Because throughout the Scriptures, it's often used in a negative term. Negative light. God often tells His people, do not test Me. Remember the people of Israel as they're walking through the wilderness? They tested God at Meribah when they, when they complained about water. And they said, Moses, tell God to show us a miracle. Show us this water that we need. And then they complained about the food. And, and they complained about the water again. And God says, do not test Me. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says the same thing to Satan when he is in the wilderness. When Satan tests him and says, see if God will, do, will, will, will be there for you. But, but here what we have is God telling His people to test Him. So, so what is the difference here? What's going on? The word is actually the same word that is used in those other places. But I think what's going on is, is in those other places, uh, in Exodus and in Matthew, and wherever uh, testing was denounced, they were testing God in the sense that they were requiring a miracle of Him. God, show yourself to, to be the miraculous person that you claim to be. And what God is doing here is not saying, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to give you a miracle, so you, you need to demand of Me a miracle. Instead, He's saying, see if I'm faithful to My promise. See if I am not a faithful God to you. Have I not promised to provide for you? Have I not promised in Haggai and Zechariah to, to prosper you, your, your fields, your, your crops? God saying, certainly I will. So, so the idea of testing here is to, to try me. See if I, I, I am going to follow through on my promise. That was not what was taking place in the wilderness. The details of God's blessing are given in verses 11 and 12. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nation will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 11 gives us an indication of what has been happening to them over the previous years. They have a devourer that's been coming into their fields and wiping out all their crops. And that's why they're so frustrated. Where are you, God? When will you return to us, they're thinking. And God's saying, the reason it's there is because you have been selfish in your giving. You have not, you have not uh, expected of Me to be faithful. The scope of God's blessing includes His abundant mercy, including material prosperity and the removal of God's punishment. So when God is saying that they have robbed Him with tithes and offerings, He's saying with all of their offerings in general. You, you have taken from Me what you should have been given giving to Me. You are withholding from Me what is rightfully Mine and of which I demand of you. So to answer the question, was Israel at that time responsible, obligated to tithe? We would say yes. Okay, the Scriptures are clear that they were obligated to tithe. Now we need to turn it to ourselves. Because we need to ask the question, are we obligated to tithe? Do we have an obligation based on this text of Scripture to tithe to God and His work? Well, before we can answer that question, we need to be able to answer this one. What determines whether, the, whether an Old Testament command is valid or not? What can... What determines whether an Old Testament command is valid for us today? I would suggest to you that it has to be restated in the New Testament. A command from the Old Testament has to be restated in the New. So we could go through the Ten Commandments if we want to. We won't do that. But the Sixth Commandment is do not murder. Okay, That was a command that was given for Old Testament Israel under the law of Moses. Now, do we have a responsibility not to murder? Yes. Why? Because it's repeated in the New Testament, right? So here's how we can tell whether an Old Testament command is meant for us or or we whether we should respond to it. Is it repeated in the New Testament? Alright, how about the first commandment? Do not have any other gods before you. Obviously, that one would be repeated in the New Testament as well. But the fourth commandment would not be. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, if we believed that that, that that was still true for us today, that we needed to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, then we should be taken off on Saturday and not doing anything. No work at all. Because the Sabbath day is Saturday. Okay, A lot of people, when they take that principle, they, they, they switch it real quick to Sunday. But, but that's not what the Sabbath was. It was actually Saturday. But that command is not restated. And, and Paul is clear with that. He says days are, are not of importance. He says, he says the law has been done away with. Jesus already fulfilled the law completely. So, how do we determine whether an Old Testament command is valid for us today? Is it restated in the New Testament? If it's not, then there's only one other way that is binding on us. And that is, if it's a timeless principle based in the character of God. Okay? Okay. So the only thing that is binding on us are things that are restated in the New Testament or binding principles that are, are based in the character of God. In other words, uh, well, let me give you an example. Okay, we won't turn there, but there is a prohibition of cross-dressing in Deuteronomy twenty-two five. Well, actually, let's turn there because I do want to show you that it is based in the character of God because that's an important point that we need to understand. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. If you know your New Testament, you know that that command is not restated. So we have to to see, okay, is this based on the character of God? Because if it's not restated, then maybe we're not responsible to obey it. But notice what happens in 22.5. Deuteronomy. A woman shall not wear man's clothing nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. And then notice, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, so here's the key words we're looking for when we see a commandment in the Old Testament that, that isn't restated in the New Testament. Does it have language like it's an abomination, it's something that God hates? If it does, then that's based in the character of God. Or it says something like, because God is holy we must Okay so this is a good example of something that's not restated in the New Testament but has binding uh, it is binding on us so we need to apply those principles to our understanding of tithing Okay is the practice of tithing first of all is it repeated or commanded for us in the New Testament and if you look up the word for tithe, you will not find it in the New Testament, except for in a couple of places, and that is in the Gospels. Jesus was commanding the the religious leaders at that time to tithe, but we have to remember that they were under the law of Moses at that time, right? When did when did the the uh, the law of Moses? Uh, when was the law of Moses done away with? Was it during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? No, it was not. So we have the law of Moses still in effect. So the only time that you're going to find the word tithe is in the Gospels, and then once in Hebrews, but it's actually only referring to an Old Testament passage. So you will not find a command for a New Testament believer to tithe in the New Testament. So so what we need to ask next is, okay, there's only one other way that tithing can be binding on us. If it's not restated in the New Testament, in other words, in the in the church era of the New Testament, which is, starts with Acts and goes through Revelation, then is there a binding principle that that is based on the character of God? Is it is it rooted in the character of God? Because if it is, then we have to uh, then we have to obey it. So what we need to do now is to look at this principle of tithing outside of the law of Moses. Okay, now if you if you know. Uh, if you've been following along in the Sunday school, you know that the the law of Moses, the the Mosaic law, the 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 covenant with Moses began in Exodus 19. Okay, so so basically we have from Exodus 19 all the way up to Acts 2. That is the the dispensation of law. That is the age of law where people were under the law. But before that and after that, they were under a different. Dispensation, the different way in which God revealed Himself. And so we have to go before Exodus 19 and find the principle of tithing. Genesis 14 is where you'll find it. Genesis 14. This is the only place where the word tithe is used outside uh, or, or before the law of Moses. We have here at the beginning of Genesis 14, Abram rescuing Lot by attacking the Elamites. The Elamites had uh, captured his nephew Lot, and on his return, Abram comes back to Salem, who was uh, or the king of Salem, excuse me, Melchizedek, who would later that that Salem would later become Jerusalem. This king is is referred to as as the priest of the Most High God. Notice chapter 14, verse 17. Then after his return, that is Abraham's, from the defeat of Shedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavet, That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abraham or Abram, gave him a tenth of all. That is a tithe, The same word. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to, king of Sodom, to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anur, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. This king is referred to in verse 18 as the priest of the God Most High. So this priest stood between God and man. And notice verse 19, he blesses Abram. He says, "Blessed be Abram of God Most High." And as a response to the victory that God gave at the end of verse 19, uh, the end of verse 20, excuse me, Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe, 10 percent of the spoils that he brought back from the war. That's the idea there. So so what we have here is not a formal binding command, but rather an action begun by Abram as a response to a loving God. If God, you're going to rescue me and Lot from this, this uh, danger, then I'm going to worship you by giving to the person who you've put in charge over me. Melchizedek. And what you'll find here in Genesis and in any other place where you have tithing is is nowhere where it's rooted in the character of God. So if tithing is not restated for us in the New Testament and tithing is not rooted in the character of God, then we have to to understand that tithing is not a binding command on New Testament believers. The the, the command to give 10% is not uh, binding on New Testament believers. Now, Next week, I'd like to look at, at uh, giving from the New Testament. I believe we do have an obligation to give, but it's not a formal 10%. It's not, uh, we can't test God in this and expect Him to overflow like this preacher at the beginning I was talking about was saying. Okay, th- these are not our promises. Don't take someone, else, so, someone else's promises for yourself. Okay, we have to understand what age we live in and who was writing to us. And um, but, but tonight, I would like to conclude with some application. Okay, what The very least we should understand is that God owns it all. God owns it all. He owns everything. And so for us to withhold anything from Him that is rightfully His is robbery. It is robbery. He takes it personally because He has created the raw materials. He has created your ability to make that money. He's given you the power to obtain that wealth. And so two principles we should see that come from this. If God owns it all, then then we own nothing. And as a result, we should not worry. We should not worry. It's not our money. It's God's money. Now, that doesn't mean we just blow God's money. We just use it however we want. God God, uh, requires us to be good stewards. We have a responsibility to be faithful to God with His money. But God owns it all, and so when it's taken away, it's not really taken away from us because it's God's. We're simply His stewards. Secondly, we need to recognize that God is not obligated to increase our net worth if we give to Him. Okay? If we ever give with the thought that God is going to give to us in return, then we're, we're basing that on an Old Testament promise which is not ours. The promise of prosperity there was for Old Testament saints only. We don't have that promise of prosperity in the New Testament. Now, we do have a promise of prosperity, but not in the way that they got it. Okay? Theirs was really, it, it helped their bottom line. It, it made their crops better. Now, God may prosper you financially. God may give back to you when you give to Him. But that's not ultimately what He's working in you to do. His final goal in your life is not that you have the biggest bottom line. His final goal is not that your, your portfolio is huge. What is God's primary concern in your life? It is for your spiritual well-being, is it not? He's making sure that you are kept all the way till the end. And so He's working in your life to change you and so, what God does promise you is future reward. We'll see this next week when we get to Matthew chapter six. That that if you lay up treasures for God in heaven, then then there is no moth or rust that can corrupt. There's no thieves that can break in and steal. Something that that God will will uh, will provide for you great spiritual resources. And I think those resources are primarily in two ways. One is future. Yes. Okay. When we give to God, we're We're confessing that we believe God and we believe the Gospel. And when we do that, God stores up for us eternal treasures. But He also gives to us grace to continue on in the spiritual walk with Him. To to continue on in the struggle against the flesh and against the devil and against the world. The majority of God's blessings come in a spiritual way for us as New Testament believers. Now that's not to say that He's not going to provide for you financially. Perhaps you've seen when you've made the the change from I'm not going to give to God and I am going to give to God. You've seen that God has provided for you even when you gave, when it didn't make sense. I don't have enough money to give to God. And yet you did it. You trusted God that, that He was faithful and that He would provide for your needs. And He did. Perhaps you've seen that. But that's not what God is ultimately working on in your life, to 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 increase your bank account. We shouldn't expect, okay, if I give this much money, I should look at my bank account tomorrow morning or my stock portfolio and I should see a change, a little bump. That's not the way God works in our dispensation. Now, one thing we need to make clear is that uh, or that I need to make clear, is that just because we're not obligated to tithe, I'm suggesting to you based on my understanding of the Scriptures that we are not obligated to tithe. Just because that is true doesn't mean we're not obligated to give. Okay, there's a difference. Do you understand the difference? Okay, tithing is a requirement to give 10%, something that was required of Old Testament believers. But but just because we're not obligated to give 10%, doesn't mean we can just, oh, we don't have to give anything to God. We'll see this more next week. I'm going to develop this more. And so I would encourage you to be here for this. But 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 what I want you to understand is that, that we have an obligation to God because uh, He has set up a system in which we need to be a part of. And He's expecting us to trust Him in this. That we should give to Him. I don't have time to flesh all that out this evening, but... Um, but we will do that next week. And then lastly, I think we need to recognize that the main issue in this passage, Malachi 3, 6-12, has nothing to do with money. Do you realize that? It has nothing to do with money. God was using money as a way to show them their, their selfish lack of repentance. The main issue in this passage has to do with, with their heart. You know, God doesn't really need our money. The main issue here is that they needed to obey Him, that they needed to come and worship Him, that they needed to give Him the glory, the praise that was due to Him. The people were, were withholding material goods that were given to them by God and ultimately owned by God. And yet, they didn't own them. And because they didn't own them, when they used them for their own livelihood in a way that was not in keeping with God's purposes for that, those resources... God was saying, "Your problem is in your heart. You're robbing me." So if we want to invest our money, our resources in the best possible place, we need to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And the only way that we'll ever do this, the only way that we'll ever give to God's work and God's, uh, God's work and, and, uh, and to God is when our hearts are fully devoted to God. One of the ways that we show our devotion to God, as we've seen here in Malachi, is is by our giving. And I hope to expand on this more next week. But what God is saying is if you are withholding from Him what is rightfully due to Him, then you are robbing Him. And you need to return. You need to repent of your selfish giving. God is faithful. And He will fulfill all of His promises. Our Our goal, I think, next week, is to find out what those promises are for us, and so we're going to uh touch on this some more we'll, we'll come back to this passage, but I want to spend most of our time looking at New Testament passages with regard to giving, so I hope you'll be here. Let's bow together for prayer. Our father the easy thing for me to do would be to bind people's conscience and tell them that they have a responsibility to give 10%. But Lord, I don't believe that the Scriptures teach that. And I pray that 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 would be clear in the way that I've presented it. But Lord, most of all, that we would be willing to look at our own hearts and see where we have failed You in this area. Have we been... Have we been unfaithful to You in the way that we use our resources? Are we withholding money from You that should be given to your, to You and Your work? Do we fail to trust You because we see people all around us who seem to be doing well without giving to a church? Lord, give us the faith to believe. We do believe but help our unbelief. Give us the grace to understand and to to apply these truths to our lives. May we may we give to you out of hearts of love that are overflowing because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He in many ways obligated himself by giving himself to us sacrificially, selflessly, and we should obligate ourselves to give to your work, and to what you are doing. And I pray that that you would help us to to look at our hearts, repent where we have failed you, failed you and be faithful to you. Uh, express our love for you and our faithfulness to you by obeying you. And we thank you for your word and how it instructs us. We thank you that you have not left us uh, with a with a partial word or unfinished word, but a completed word that is a revelation of what You've wanted us to see. And we pray that You'd help us to, to rightly divide it and that we would be faithful people who are following it, faithful ministers of Your Word. We would obey it and spread it to the world around us, particularly to the world that is nearest to us, our own church, our own family, but also our workplace, our neighbors, uh, our city. And uh, we just pray that You'd give us the grace to obey. May You be honored in how we apply this to our lives and think about these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.